says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another installment of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020, and coming to you, well, not live, but pre-recorded on a Wednesday, the 7th of September, as we enter finals football in the NRL. Got to get the boys in here for all the NRL news and takes from the last week that was, so let's get them going. News team, assemble! Joining me in the uh, tip sheet this week is the Reagan Campbell of Recorded Audio 60s. How you doing, big fella? <laughs> the Reagan Campbell, does that mean I'm hitting it up fearlessly? Is that what you're trying to yeah, say? Yeah, exactly. You're going to tear in like RCG. And of course, to uh, go with all the power in the uh, prop, ro- the prop front row engine room, we've got to have the guile of the uh, playmaker. And join us in that regard is Spiro. How you doing, mate? Going well, guys. Very, very excited for this Friday. I don't think I've been more excited for an NRL match in a very, very long time. So pumped, keen to get out to the foot of the mountains and watch Para take on the Panthers on Friday night. And we have a well, mate, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to turn around in in the seat that I've got in, I believe, in the Western Stand at, at Penrith this week and and give you a wave. In the, I'm uh, looking the forward to that. <laughs> well, I'll be standing next to the great Ray Hadley. So Ray uh, will be calling that match and, I'll be uh, standing next to him, looking after his stats and making sure that everything goes to plan. So, Ray, uh, I don't know if he's very confident that Parramatta are going to get the win. When I spoke to him last week, he he said, oh, Parramatta are probably going to bow out in straight sets. But I hope Parra win just to prove Ray wrong. And uh, and uh, hopefully they can catch him on the tipping competition ladder because he's still up there. So it'll be a great night. I'm really looking forward to it. The atmosphere will be absolutely electric. What a way to kick off final series it couldn't get any better than that and I think it's appropriate that this game starts the series because last year when these two teams played in the finals it was up in Queensland so this sort of makes up for the lost ground from last year and as we mentioned and you sort of speaking to there Spiro week one the finals so much to talk about so much to unpack we've got more drama across the NRL to get to as well but let's start with the NRL captain's call for the finals eight teams eight captains all in the one spot as they are promo the the finals to come but there was some interesting takes come out of this i know that the daily telegraph did a little questionnaire uh for who the opposition teams thought they're going to play in the finals what their opinions were on week one home finals the the what's it called the suburban home grounds versus the bigger venues but you were out there as well mate and you had a, a chance to talk to a few of the captains about their thoughts on the upcoming final series I did. I did. I was out there on Monday at Telstra HQ where they held the season launch media event and it was good to be back and only eight players or eight captains around this time uh, around compared to last time and I got the chance to speak to the Eels captain Clint Gutherson. We chatted for about 10 minutes I'd say with behind the mic and a couple minutes either side of that just chatting generally and, and seeing how he was and how he was feeling heading into this week's game and it was a great chat. I mean, Gutho is just a brilliant guy. And for people that haven't met him before, he's an absolute champion, both on and off the field, very generous with his time. It was funny because he actually remembered me from earlier in the year. I didn't know if he would. 
And uh, when I got in the room and I said, oh, you know, great job and great season, really happy with how it's gone. I'm a para fan. And he said, I remember. I remember you from earlier in the year. You're a para fan and glad you've enjoyed the year. So it was good to good to chat with him again. We spoke about quite a lot of things and I got a bit of that on camera or on, on uh, record for Wildwater Sports Radio, but I also got a bit of content exclusively for the Cumberland Throw. And we're going to be listening back to a few of those pieces of or few pieces of audio, uh, recalling that. And we're going to kick off with uh, the question that I asked him about: Will this be the year that Parramatta dr- break the premiership drought? And I used a bit of a reference to Top Gun, the movie, because back in 1986, Top Gun was a top-grossing movie. We find ourselves in uh, 2022. Top Gun, Top Gun is the top-grossing movie again. Bit of synergy there. This is what I had to say to. King Gutho about that, uh, I guess, parallel. Having that 36-year premiership drought hanging over your head must be frustrating at times, Gutho, but I found a little stat which gives you guys a bit of confidence. <laughs> All right. right. So in 1986, the last year Para won the title, the top grossing film was Top Gun. I don't know if you've seen this already. Fast forward to 2022, Top Gun Maverick, top grossing film. So there's a bit of synergy there. Surely this is the My mum actually, uh, my mum was telling me that the other day and she's all into this weird stuff and finding weird things. So look, we'll take it. If it helps us, it helps us. But um, look, as I said, there's a lot of hard work to go before we even get close to that. So we're just looking forward to it and, and taking it day by day, week by week. And look, as I said, it's, it's going to be exciting and uh, we need to embrace it and, and see what we can do. Yeah, that's a great little soundbite there, Spiro. And you know what? In sports, you got to embrace all the weird stuff, all the quirks, all the superstitious things. Because even if they make no difference, you know, in a, in a legit sense, the not even the psychological, but like just the, the little bits that you can get here and there when it comes to you know whether it's courage or momentum or belief, you know, even if it's something as weird as a film grossing, the film and its sequel grossing the biggest the biggest uh, turnover in you know 30, 30 plus years separate. Yeah, I'll take that. That's a cool little quirk. The funny thing is as well, I got a message from one of my managers at work after he heard that little soundbite and he said, great reference. I figure you'll be walking around with aviators for the next four weeks. <laughs> the, the big and little I bomber said, jacket and aviators, yes, sir. Yeah, well, you know, if that's what it takes, I'll do it. But, um, but yeah, it was really good. You know, a bit of fun. Good to throw those ones in and, and just lighten the mood a little bit. When you're talking so much footy, you want to try and go away from that because you want that engagement to be there and, and just to lighten it up a little bit. So that was really cool. I also asked Gutho, it was a bit of a left of field one, but it was about short dropouts because I don't know if you guys have noticed, but in the last couple of weeks or last month, Parramatta have been doing executing the short dropout quite a bit. A lot of other teams and players have been doing the same and there are sort of questions around why is it making a return all of a sudden? We haven't seen short dropouts in this capacity for many, many years. So why is that the case? I asked Gutho what the thinking was behind it, and this is what he had to say. Left the field one. The short dropouts are coming back in a fashion. You've been doing it quite a lot. A lot of other players, other teams have been doing it as well. What's the secret behind it? What's the thinking behind it? A lot of fans out there probably keen to know why is it making such a big return? Um, I think it's just 50-50. You can, you can get the ball back. You can get a penalty. Um, sometimes it goes against you. I think I saw one on the weekend. It was the Warriors game. They, they went short and then someone just grabbed it and, and scored. But look, I think we just spoke about it at the start of the year. You're probably more chance of getting a loose ball or something like that more than going long. So um, just a bit, a bit different. It, it, things always like this always come back. And 
yeah, we've been trying. We've got Laney and, and Micah out on, on the edge and Wunger on the other side. So uh, we've got a few targets there and, and then our other teams are doing the same. Yeah, that's actually a great left field question to bring up, Spiro, because Sixties and I have been speaking about this for a while, not just in the 2022 season, but prior in, in terms of game theory and why teams don't uh, go for particularly the short dropout, less so the short kickoff, uh, more more aggressively because you're going to end up defending your goal line regardless. You might as well turn it into a 50-50 scramble for possession. And one thing we've also spoken about this year is how good Gufferson has become at executing that restart. He hits it 10, 11, 12 metres so consistently perhaps the best in the competition. 100%. It's worked really well for us this year, and I'm sure we'll be seeing more of it in the finals. And I guess the thinking behind it also has to do with Sean Lane, and as you mentioned there, Sean Lane and Mike Aceva, and then Wanger on the other side. You've got really strong edges there, and they can contribute and help to that. One, one thing in terms of the short dropout, which I, I got a question from a good mate of mine, Sneaky Pete, who's a listener of, of the Cumberland Throw, was our NRL players allowed to lift their teammates? Uh, the old spot to, line out like Union. Like Union on yeah. the spot. And I said, I don't think so, but there's nothing in the rules I think that says you can't. I need to go and have a look. But are you guys able to maybe weigh in on that quickly? Is there, is there something there which might allow that to happen or is it a straight no for, for I, lifting? I have no players? idea. I've actually joked of 60s recently about, you know, if you get a player to chariot another player, you know, on, on their shoulders, you can go and catch touch finders and whatnot on the other guy as long as you left the field of play. Because I don't know, we don't actually have the official rule book available, I think, the like down to all the different bylaws and sublaws. So I'd have to get my my hands on the black and white text to tell you about that one. I'm not sure. 60s, you got I've a, got, I've got a I've got a suspicion. I mean, for a start, uh, my take on this whole thing is I'd like Lane to be a bit more aggressive in his pursuit of those dropouts because I think there's there's times where we don't contest the catch quite as much as we should given Gutho's accuracy with landing them. But my thought on that would be that it would constitute some sort of obstruction because the moment that you're, you know, maybe you're, you're turning and you're lifting, like you're actually probably putting your back into the opposition player and lifting your own player above uh, above your shoulders to you know for them to get the catch. So my guess would be that the referee might probably call it an obstruction and maybe it might be viewed as an obstruction in the game because you only really see those those lifts in um, specific situations in union like the either the line out or the or those restarts um yeah and and that they've got strange obstruction rules in union you know like um there's any sort of contact with the opposition can be a, a strange obstruction call but yeah, I just don't know. I mean, I, I'm guessing it'd probably be an obstruction. That's all. That's all I'm saying. So, um, yeah. In, in terms of the game theory, really like it from the Parramatta Eels. Like you said, sixties. I think guys like Sean Lane could be a little bit more aggressive trying to finish off the contest for the ball. But I, I think it's been a great step forwards for the team when it comes to you know looking for those little mismatches and opportunities to exploit extra possessions. I'm hoping that it goes a step further and that we start exploring the different kickoffs. Now, we remember years ago when um, it was uh, – I'm just trying to – I've got a mental blank on uh, the, the winger's name that oh, played for the Tigers. Uh, no, um, uh, Pat Al, Richards. Al, sorry? Pat Richards. 
Pat Richards, that's it. My my apologies to Pat Richards here. It was I was just struggling for a, a name in the uh, in the the uh, slice of cheese uh, Swiss cheese that's my brain at times. But um, he he was one of the first that really made that kickoff awkward with the 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 big kickoff tees and and getting that ball to spiral up in the air off a kickoff. But we've also seen, uh, I think. Daly Cherry Evans has been pretty good with that drilling the ball really low and into the sideline from uh, the the kickoffs. So, you know, there's a there's a whole capacity not just for a short kickoff, but for awkward kicks, kicks kicks along the ground, um, kicks where the the ball where you you kick off and you place the ball going back towards you hit the hit the top of the ball and get that really nasty. Um, bounce uh, every so often that it that kicks over the top of the heads and literally there's nothing that a receiver can do about it if they if that big bounce comes as it's heading towards them they they can lift, literally be standing there watching it so I think there's great capacity for this and maybe the short dropouts and the uh, contesting the kicks is going to be the start of making it a contest for every restart of play and. Given that there isn't a, a contest in the play the ball, given that there isn't a contest in the scrum these days, it makes that it, it's introducing that unexpected into the game, and I, I think that's a good thing. It makes it a lot more interesting, and I guess the other part is that when you've got such strong defence like Parramatta do at the moment, you back yourselves, even if you're you're on, you know, you're, you're defending the opposition. They got you know that ten meters to the try line that gap. You back your defence to, to be good enough to save a try, even if the opposition does win the short dropout, if you get what I mean. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's an interesting one. But, yeah, I had to ask Arthur about it because I've noticed a few fans and people in the media sort of ask, why are, people, why are players doing the short dropout? Why are teams looking to that option? And I think he provided a pretty good answer, and I think we'll see more of it 100%. Well, I can, I can say to you, I didn't put it in the preseason reports because – Obviously, it was going to be giving away a tactic, but they practiced and practiced and practiced that all through the preseason. And it's interesting you say that, 60s, because he did mention in that little soundbite that they, they they spoke about it at the start of the year and they did do it in training. So it's uh, it's interesting. Maybe maybe it should have been in the uh, in the preseason report. I know you don't want to give away a tactic. Uh, but no, who knows? Would, you know what I mean? Yeah. I can I can guarantee you if I'd have said that in the preseason training report, I would have very quickly received a phone call <laughs> and and asking what do I do? And the, of course, the other thing is too, I do when I go to these sessions, I view it as a supporter. And if if I'm a supporter and I'm giving away secrets of what they're doing, mm. it crosses the line from informing other supporters and goes into informing opposition. Yeah, weaponizing for sure. Weaponizing and, against the club. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and and that's yeah, that's certainly the 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 area where um I, I'm not how can I put it? I'm I'm not interested in in a scoop in that regard because it's um it's uh, I don't want to do I would never do anything that puts the, the club in a situation where they have to think um, you know, they have to really do things in secret in For their sure. so uh or, or do anything that would that would undermine what they're trying to achieve for a season. So yeah, it's mm. one of those fine lines that you have to make sure that you never cross and, and actually the, the decision's easy. Like the when I think, you know, is this something that 
what goes through my mind is, is this something that they would like to keep to themselves? And if the answer is yes, then you don't write on it. So it's, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the guide that I go by. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and just quickly as well, before we, we move through and pass the captain's call, I spoke to Gutho about life away from footy. He's become a father for the mm-hmm. first time this year. He has his little daughter, Romy. Nine months and old, always, I think, right? Yeah, nine months. Yeah, she's nine months. And um, and he was just, you know, he was speaking about the influence that she's had and how he's enjoying having her around. So this is what Gutho had to say about life away from footy in season 2022. Last question. We spoke about this when we sat together at the start of the year. You become a father for the first time. Your first Father's Day over the weekend. How is it having little Romy around and, you know, swimming lessons and all the, the kiddie stuff that goes with that? You're enjoying that and life away from footy's going well? Yeah, life's good. Um, I've been sort of pushing life, how good life is the last couple of months and it, it, I'm just lucky enough to be where we are as, as people and as a family. And um, she over the weekend, she was actually a bit sick. She had a bit of a flu, so she wasn't the happiest of girls. So, uh, but look, I can't complain. It's it's a great time, and to be able to watch her grow and do and start doing things and more and more things with her. And we're fortunate enough we get a few days off throughout the week that you can do things, and uh, it's not sort of a a nine to five every day and we get to spend a lot of the quality time with the kids and there's a lot of young kids out of Parramatta that are exactly the same so look if you're happy off the field you're playing good footy on it so that's what we're trying to do and that's what we hopefully are doing in the next couple of weeks. Gutho thanks so much for your time all the best Friday night hopefully this is the year 36 years a long time (laughs) but let's hope Parramatta lifting the trophy come uh, October 2 I think. Thanks mate appreciate it. Yeah that's a a lovely little bit of slice of life insight there for Gutho being a a freshly minted father, I suppose, you know, with a nine-month-year-old little daughter and he's doing all the right things there, enjoying the trials and tribulations too that come alongside it when they get sick and get grumpy. Uh, but, yeah, he's, mm. he's doing great things on the field now. And it sort of coincides nicely with the article that came out this week about how, uh, you know, he's learned to pace himself this year as, as opposed to years past where he's gone all out throughout the season and arrived at this point, at the pointy season at the end, uh, pointy end of the season, sorry, uh, a little bit underdone or, or sort of overdone really. And so he's found that not just the work-life balance, but, you know, the, the work balance itself too. So he's now positioned, much like the team, to be, you know, in the, the best form coming into the finals he's ever been in. And it was interesting speaking to him because he was very relaxed. The vibe that I got was he was happy, he was relaxed, and he did have a good night's sleep that night before. He mentioned that over the weekend it was a little bit uh, restless, but on Sunday night heading into Monday when the captains call, he had a good night's sleep. He felt very, very comfortable, quietly confident, but trying not to get ahead of himself. And when you look at his form and you look at the stats, I mean, he leads the Eels try scorers list and he also has played every minute of every game for Parramatta this year. One of four NRL players to do that. That's a huge achievement. And I think he's in some great form. Defensively at the back, he's saving some heaps of tries yeah. and he's doing really well. Mike Acevo as well, and I spoke to Gutho about this. Micah's defensive reads have improved out of sight. Usually our wings, where we're our weakest, I think we're playing some of our best footy, you know, saving tries. There were so many points during last week's game against the Storm where they had opportunities to come down through our wings, but our defense there finally, after so many years of pain, it's finally improving, which is so good to see. But, yeah, great to chat with Gutho. As I mentioned, he's a, he's a great guy, was very generous with his time, and... I reckon that uh, you know he's in a really, really good headspace heading into the final series, and and I think they can go all the way. Definitely, we got a good chance. 
Mate, that was they were tremendous grabs that you had there, and I hope our listeners really enjoyed it. I know that I did listening to it, and I definitely picked up what you were saying about how relaxed Gutho sounded. And and just to what you were saying about the how Micah is improving in his defensive reads, you can see that the Eels partway through the season switched their defensive uh, method to uh, their defensive system into a slide system. Now, I was saying partway through the year that it had changed, but there were players that were falling out of the systems in those early, uh, the first few rounds where they started to change things up and go for the slide. But um, to Micah's credit as well, it's like he's, his awareness of what's happening in the game has made a quantum leap in in so many regards it's it's impacted his how he plays in attack it impact it's impacted how he's playing in defense i think he looks fitter than he has before he stays in the game a lot better than he has before but you could see things like his awareness of the the just having a foot on the sideline and touching the kickoff that uh, where he got the yeah. uh, the storm were penalised, and that's just a little moment. But you see, a lot of players will not be as aware of that in a game. And I think, given Micah's still relative newness to uh, rugby league, and I say relative newness because uh, I mean he's he's only been playing at at a at this full professional level. Since he's been with the Eels, he was a lower grade player with Penrith, and then also through the uh, the other divisions of rugby league, the Ron Massey Cup and the Sydney Shield, that sort of thing. Before he came, before he went to Penrith, so he's 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 trod a different path to a lot of players who've played rugby league all their lives. So having that awareness was obviously important, but he's it's it's like he's. Um, watching the play a lot more. And I wondered whether this time away from the game has given him an opportunity to maybe study the game. It, and, very, it, it or, may have. You're right about that. And you know, the I, other thing too I, is that since 2020 when uh, Brad Parker got him at uh, then, I think it was still Brookvale or maybe it was Four Pines, but that tackle where it banged up his knee, he wasn't quite the same right up until he did that full-on knee rupture the following year. And so, in a way, there was a silver lining to be able to do that full recovery, full re- I don't know if it was a full reconstruction, but the full recovery of his knee and come back in career-best shape. The yeah. interesting thing as well, which Gutho mentioned uh, in our chat. Now, those grabs, just so you guys know, exclusive content for the Cumberland throw. So, a, a nice little insight that no one else has been able to get. So, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it, and I'm sure the listeners did. The other thing which Gutho mentioned in our chat was that Micah hasn't played the past two final series. He was out last year with a knee injury, and I believe the year before with a knee injury as well or, or something of that kind. So he he hasn't actually been in the last two final series, and I'm sure he's going to be a huge addition, a huge in, playing great footy. And there may be a bit of a parallel here, guys, because Micah also became a father for the first time this year, got mm-hmm. a little boy, and maybe you know life away from footy is going well for him. I'm sure it is. Same for Gutho. Both of them are in arguably the form of their career so or career best form so it is great to see it and both of them are on fire heading into the finals and i know Sparrow, you've got a few more little gems to share for us from the captain's call but i just want to go back to that daily telegraph question that i mentioned because one of the 
or a couple of the big questions they asked all the eight captains were, who is your team going to play in the grand final? Who is going to be the most influential player in the final series? And naturally, the majority of captains responded with Penrith being the team they're going to play. That makes complete sense. Uh, Isaiah Yo singled out the Roosters as the team he's expecting to play in the grand final. But the only other team that got a run among the eight captains was Parramatta. Both Elliot Whitehead and uh, James Tedesco pointed out the Parramatta Eels as potential grand final sparring partners. And Tedesco went a step further, uh, picking out Mitchell Moses as the potential player of the final series. So Eels and their big run into the finals have certainly got a few other teams looking over their shoulders now. It's funny you mention that because at the start of the year when I spoke to Teddy, he said it's going to be a Parramatta V Roosters grand final. Now, it may still be possible. That may still be able to happen. I think the Roosters are going to be very hard to beat. Penrith will be there. I think no questions asked. Penrith will be in the grand final. It's a matter of which other team will meet them. And I think, you know, Parramatta are going to win this week. Penrith lose, but they'll still make the GF. So it's an interesting one. Uh, and... I mean, it's it's no surprises that the Panthers are up there. They've played consistent footy all year, and I just can't see them, uh, you know, not being in the in the final. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. But yeah, Teddy did say at the start of the year it'll be a Parramatta v Roosters grand final. So it'll be interesting. And given that there were seven other captains outside the Parramatta Eels, there, mate, what little bits of insight did you manage to glean uh, from the eight other or seven other contenders in the twenty twenty two premiership race? If you say pick one captain that gave you a sign or something the most interesting or, you know, gave you the most insight, it's probably Jesse Bromwich from the Storm. He's a lovely guy. Never met him before, but we spoke for about 10 minutes on camera, 10 minutes off camera, which was which was quite good. And the vibe I got from Jesse was that there's concern, there's a bit of fear coming into this weekend. You know, sudden death footy, he said it to, him, to me. He's like, and this was off, off the record or off mic. He said, we haven't played much Sunday death footy since 2014. That was the last time we did it. And it's going to be tough. You know, Canberra have a good record in Melbourne. They like coming to, to Melbourne and beating us at Amy Park. And he was just worried, you know. A few expletives in there won't, won't add them in. But he was just concerned. That was a vibe I got, that there's a bit of fear, a bit of worry heading into this week's game. And it's going to be tough because Canberra have had a good run. They haven't really been tested. They haven't played a top 18. But they've got a good record in Melbourne. They've got momentum. They've got seven out of eight wins, I think. Seven out of their eight last games they've won. And they may knock off Melbourne this week. I wouldn't be surprised if that actually happens. But Jesse was concerned. And it was interesting because you you wouldn't think many captains would give much away. Most of them were pretty relaxed, pretty calm, pretty composed. But Jesse was the one captain that I would say had a bit of a concern, fear, uncertainty, unknown heading into this week. And probably thinks that he, you know, they can lose and, and, and they may be a chance of getting knocked off this weekend. Well, I guess when you're looking at that as a contest, you've got the Raiders coming in and they've they've literally got nothing to, to lose because no one's rating them as having um, a genuine chance of winning the title. And yet they're coming in with such a good record against the Storm in Melbourne, certainly recently, uh, what have they got to lose? It's, and on, conversely, you've got the Storm, who only a week ago people were expecting were going to be in the top four. Uh, two weeks ago, they would have been, uh, before they lost to the Roosters, probably most people were, were thinking it was, um, they were a lock-in to be top four. So fast forward to now, they're facing 
elimination in the very first week of the finals as opposed to going deep into the finals, you can see why maybe their mindset isn't like it might have been most years. So Flowing uncertainty got- around Jerome Hughes, some guys not in peak form, and you know suddenly, yeah, it, it is a nasty little hand grenade you're trying to juggle, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think we're, they were. Um, there were certain aspects about their their game that have been exposed in the last few weeks. Their defence isn't as formidable as it once was. You've seen that frustration has entered their mindset. You've got, I mean, that the that lashing out that Munster had during the game against the Roosters the, with the uh, with the forearm. That was um, that was definitely frustration there. They were getting beaten up, yeah. and he he just wasn't he wasn't happy that things weren't falling their way, and he's he he's just had that quick lash out. Um, there isn't. The, I mean, we've always known that the the storm can Im, can get involved with niggle and that side of the game, and and try to mentally get on top of opponents. What we've seen in more recent times is, you know, maybe. You know, Grubbiness rather than niggling, if that makes, if there's a distinction that you can that you can come up with there, where well, in the past they've they've gained a competitive advantage from the, the niggle, right? Correct. And this correct. time now, it's they've been unsettled, and the grubbiness is a, almost like a reactionary uh, outlash or you know or response to being outplayed through other portions of the field. That's a far more succinct way of saying what I was trying to say, mate. So I appreciate that. And of course, the captain's course, Spiro puts the wraps on an incredible, you know, or sets up incredible storylines heading into an absolutely mammoth weekend of football. We've got two monstrous Sydney derbies. Obviously, our boys taking on the Penrith Panthers in a battle for the West. On Sunday, you've got the two foundation clubs in the Roosters and Rabbitohs going hammer and tongs at the new Allianz Football Stadium. You've got the, I wouldn't say the, the storied rivals, but there's certainly some recent history between the Melbourne Storm and the Canberra Raiders of the Raiders really having an edge there when it came to, comes to some of the big games. And then, of course, uh, the two new kids on the block when it comes to the NRL finals, the Cronulla Sharks and the North Queensland Cowboys got the two youngest or youngest or, or close to tenured coaches in the NRL making waves. So good to see how Fitzgibbon and Peyton handle their finals run this year. But yeah, four absolutely cracking games across the weekend. It will be. It will be. I think it's the best week one of the finals we've had in a decade or mm, more. Yeah. When you look at all the matchups and everything, no they're all going to be very high quality it, games. It feels like the last few years there's been a couple of easy pick finals in week one where some team's going to walk over the other team and it's almost written in stone heading into the game. This week you've got you've got four games where anyone could take it. So very, 100%. very exciting stuff. And can I just say just a couple things? First of all, that new Allianz Stadium will be humming on Sunday afternoon. I was out there on Friday night. Atmosphere was electric and I'm biased. You know, I love Combank Stadium, but I have to be honest here to provide an accurate image. And I've got to say that it was better. The atmosphere was better and louder than Combank. And I really do hope Parramatta end up playing a game there this final series just so our fans can experience it and head there in numbers and really drown them out. So it was unbelievable. Well done to Todd Payton. Well done to Craig Fitzgibbon. Two guys who have really taken their teams to the next level. I actually had the Cowboys for my wooden spoon. So for them to be playing finals footy and in a qualifying final week one is is pretty remarkable. Canberra have had a great run. 
I mean, the Broncos absolutely bombed it. They they muck, mucked up their opportunity. They couldn't even beat the Dragons last week. Yeah, but, crazy. You know, good. Well done to Canberra on making the top eight. Well deserved. Melbourne, as we've spoken about, they they you know they needed to finish top four. I think it's going to be hard for them. And I think the whole vibe I got was from Jesse, as I said, was it's going to be very hard for them to win the title from outside the top four. And when you think about it, they're going to have to come to Sydney next week. Doesn't matter what the result is on Friday night. But they will have to come to Sydney and play either Parramatta or Penrith. Fans from the Sydney teams are going to absolutely drown out the Melbourne fans. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough ask. Usually, we, teams have been travelling to Melbourne in week two of the final to play the Storm. But this year, that will not be the case. Melbourne will have to travel to Sydney. Makes it hard. And Battle of the West, what a way to kick it all off. Very fitting way. Really looking forward to it, and we'll, we'll dive into the preview shortly. And, of course, as eight teams remain in the hunt, fighting tooth and claw to win that coveted premiership, eight teams are also on their backsides watching the footy from the couch. Let's start with the Manly Seagulls, boys, because I, I don't know where to start exactly. We've got the Marty Tapau TikTok saga or drama. You've got the Mad Monday truants. You've got the factional warfare between we, – we've got the Pens, the Fultons, the Tabojeviches. Uh, there's even more beyond that. And then most recently now, according to the Mole, there is a push to install Stephen Hales as the head coach over Des Hasler. So which part of that you know, little slice of drama pie do you want to dig into first? Oh, it's a tough one, but I, I just want to kick it all off by saying I'm a little bit disappointed that the build-up to the finals, you know, a week where all the headlines should be about the great matchups, the rivalries, and all that's coming up over the weekend. All the headlines have been about Manly. Classic, I'm actually classic quite disappointed, rugby to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, I, I get that, that Manly sell papers. I get they're a big club and an important club. But are the journos that desperate for stories that they've got to go to Manly and, and see what's happening there? Focus on the finals. This is where it counts. This is the business end of the year. And there are some great games. It's the best week, one of the finals, as I said, that I think we've ever had. And when, there's not a lot of focus or emphasis on that. How many articles have you written about, have you read about the rivalry between Parramatta and Penrith? I, I don't think any. All the journals seem to be focused on Manly. Now I get that. It's an important story and they are crushing down at a rapid pace. But uh, it'd be nice to see more headlines about the finals. In terms of um, the whole Des thing, I mean, he had a, t- he had a crap year. They did terribly. At the end of the day, but when you look at finals, when you look at how that all panned out, uh, or when you look at injury sorries, they had a tough run of it. No Tommy Travojevic. They had you know ongoing issues throughout the year with injuries with a number of players, which made it very difficult. Then you had the Jersey saga, where I actually felt that Des Hasler was chucked under the bus. Oh, that's my from outside looking in, it sure feels like he was thrown underneath the bus there. Yeah, and that, that's my observation. So I think he was. He was thrown under the bus. So if anyone has a right to be a bit pissed off, it's actually Des Hasler because he's been disrespected and, and shunned by the management and the, the ownership at Manly. So I think that he's actually copping a raw deal. I think it's it's unfair. It's slack. I doubt they're going to get rid of him. I know their journals like to write what, they, what they've been writing at the moment, but can you really find a suitable replacement? Maybe Shane Flanagan. I don't know if Flanagan really wants a head coaching gig. I haven't spoken to him in a while. I'm going to catch up with him on Saturday and uh, we'll chat about it. But I think in terms of the replacements, you look at the options, there aren't many around. So I think there's, he's, he's there. He's going to stay. But he's copping it and it's not justified in my eyes. It's a, it's a rough deal. And speaking of rough deals, uh, we, we've heard about the division between the playing group. One player that seems to 
be at the forefront of it is Marty Tapau on TikTok. He posted a sequence of plays from their last round loss where he was uh, overlooked or overpassed, overcalled about half a dozen times to quite visible frustration. It makes you wonder if he was so on the nose of a faction of the playing group, why did Manly fight so hard to deny him going to the Parramatta Eels this year? Just bizarre. Very true. Very true. It's clear that he is on the outer. He's unhappy. He doesn't want to be there. And I mean, I think he'll probably end up at Parramatta or he'll definitely be at another club next year. But it's all uh, unraveling. And we're seeing it before our eyes that Tapao is clearly unhappy with his own teammates. And there, there is division within the, the club. And I'm not surprised because after that jersey situation, the pride jersey, there was clear to be division there. You know, it was, it was always going to happen. And as we've seen with the Dragons last year with their barbecue gate, there was division there. There's division here with Manly. And Marty's clearly unhappy. He'll end up at another club last year. But it's an odd one. It's very weird because Manly was so adamant to hold on to him. Maybe they thought they were going to make a run for the finals and he was going to play an important part in that or be an asset. But it's it's unusual. I don't think you'll see him in a in a Manly jersey again. I think he'll be at Parramatta next year, possibly. And just uh, just quickly, it, it, as far as my takes are concerned, yeah, there's obviously a division that's there within the club, and they'll probably they probably do need just a complete clean out for them to turn things around. But I think, in terms of their performance this year, it also goes back to what a number of people identified at the start of the year they didn't have the depth in the club. And when you were speaking about those injuries that they had, Spiro, I was just thinking straight away, you've got to have people to cover those positions. And yeah, there were some key players, but you also mentioned they just had a, a real run of injuries across other um, other players in, within the club. And they just, they've got such an investment in certain players and the money that's paid to certain players within the club. It means that they don't have that depth. And you saw that their uh, reserve-grade side sits down at the bottom of the table, and there's a reason for that. And they, just haven't got, they just haven't got the quality of the playing group there at all. So, And in, uh, in regards to you know picking a new head coach or sticking with Des or getting rid of players, I'm reminded of an old war adage. I'm not sure if it's Napoleon Bonaparte or Sun Tzu, but never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. Just let Manly continue to employ yeah. the police. <laughs> That's probably a good point to leave that on, on Manly. Yeah, oh, we're not right. going to complain about that, are we? No, no. no. Uh, funny little bit from 360 at the start of the week, boys. Poor Kent made the trip out to Leichhardt to stand on the hill for 50 bucks to uh, watch the home team boo their team en route to an absolute smashing at the hands of the Canberra Raiders. Uh, we don't want to linger too much on the Leichhardt experience again, but once again, just it's a stadium that $50 to sit on a hill to watch your team get dropped by 50 Like, what's going on there, boys? I know 60s has a lot to say about Leichhardt, and I'm keen to hear his takes on that. But for mine, first of all, what a horrible performance from the Tigers. They were disgusting, to be honest. I mean, to come out in the first half and have 40 points piled on you, is disgraceful, it's disrespectful to the fans, and they should be ashamed. They should hang their heads in shame because that is an awful way to go out this season. They should have at least come and put up a contest and put up a fight for their fans, for the jersey, bit of pride in the jersey, but it's clear they don't have that. In terms of paying 50, 60 bucks to stand on the hill at Leichhardt, I was speaking to Danny Widler about it at the captain's launch, um, or the, the captain's call on Monday, and it's a farce. It's ridiculous. I mean... 
we had this discussion when the Parramatta game was there, $65, I think it was, to sit to stand on the hill. Are they kidding themselves? It's an absolute joke. Um, I know that for this week at the Cronulla game uh, at Shark Park, it's about 50 bucks as well to, to stand on the hill. That's a final game. It's a game, finals. NRL. Yeah, exactly. But still, you know, I, I just think the game has to look at this, you know, and, and Peter Volandi's great. I think he's doing a great job, at, you know, leading the game. Everyone's got their view on him, but I think he's done a great job. But the next thing that I think he has to really look at in the offseason is making the experience more affordable for fans. That goes from tickets to games, merchandise, food prices at venues, right? I know he can't control all of that, but there's going to be something uh, where the NRL has to step in in cases like it was on Sunday and say to the Tigers, you can't be charging 65 bucks per ticket to sit or stand on the hill. You've got to be more affordable. You've got to welcome fans in. They only had 10,000 there, guys, which is pretty poor for Leichhardt. Their capacity is about 18 to 20, so they should have had more. I know that their form hasn't been great, but if tickets were more affordable, maybe there would have been more people there, but fans would have thought, stuff that, pay 60 bucks to see my team potentially get thrashed. Not worth it. And there were people leaving at half time. So I think that's the next mission for Peter Volandis. Start regulating ticket prices, making it more affordable, and ensure that you know merchandise is affordable too. 120 bucks for a jersey is way too expensive. And I can tell you that I, I never buy a jersey in season. I wait till off season, go to Peter Wynn's score at Parramatta and buy a, buy a jersey there, you know, from the previous year, whatever, because I don't want to pay 120 bucks for a jersey that's going to date the year after. So I'm keen to hear what you have to say, 60s, but it needs to be addressed. Parramatta, I think, do a good job of it ticket-wise. I mean, you go to Combank, and I think we worked it out. Membership-wise, it's like something like $10 a game when you work it out. Um, Where in general admin seats, perfectly good seating, but when you calculate it, you do the math, it's 10 bucks a game, super affordable, and that's fair enough. You know, you can justify that, but not 65 to stand on the hill. Yeah, it's that 65 to stand on the hill is way above what we pay on a weekly basis for um, our seats where we are sitting on halfway in the uh, in the eastern stand. In one of the, one of the best venues the in the entire country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, yes, I do have a bit to say about this because I – I mean, we've we've gone through all this um, issue about funding for improvements at suburban stadiums. Now, it's we've talked about how, and the the NRL's spoken about the importance of tribalism and playing out at suburban grounds. There has to be some level of compromise on this, and if we're going to play at venues that are locked in the 1960s, and let's be honest, if you have a ground where the hill is a major component of housing people, and there are plenty of grounds still in Sydney where the hill is a major component of housing the spectators at a game, you have to be charging minimal money to be in those areas because it is not 2022 facilities when you've got hills there. And most of those grounds that have got hills have got some pretty substandard toilet facilities, uh, catering facilities. It is not a, it's, it's not a great spectator experience where you're going to pay that sort of money to go and watch the game. And look, my, my view on the Tigers with that last round, they should have just thrown open the gates and let people in. If, they, if, if the people didn't have a reserved seat ticket... Honestly, if you're turning up to support your team after the season they've put out, 
then yeah, you deserve a, at least a freebie. I agree, sixties. Yeah, and and now this rolls in. This is where I wanted to say something. Could we have had? I mean, let's say for example that the likes of of uh, the Tigers or or the Dragons or Manly. Uh, these teams that qualify didn't qualify for finals. Just imagine if they did. Would we really want to see finals football in the in 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 the first couple of rounds of the finals being played at these venues? Um, like I think it's actually ridiculous that they're playing at um, at Cronulla. I mean, the ground holds eleven thousand, and and they've got and and again, there's a. But probably about half of that are going to be in standing positions at their at the hill at one end or in front of the stand at, at the other goalpost end. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it's an absurdity. Now, it works out they're playing the North Queensland Cowboys, so maybe they weren't going to get a crowd around twenty thousand anyway. But for so few tickets to be available, if they had been playing another Sydney club, you imagine another. Them drawn to play another Sydney club, where the venue's only holding eleven thousand people. It's such a bizarre antiquity that a subset of Pat Rugby League fans cling to, isn't it? The suburban ground for big time games, and like yes, home field advantage is something you've earned and absolutely should be respected. But by the same token, you have to come to the table with uh, facilities that can accomp- uh, accommodate a home to, a home uh, week one home final too. And unfortunately, the way the NRL is right now, and that's why there's been such a push to not necessarily centralise the stadium strategy, but get a number of you know these new era stadiums established, being Combank, Allianz, etc., uh, because they can be week one home, week one, week two home final venues, as well as being through the regular season absolute you know uh, beacons for the game on a world stage. Well, we do. This is the thing: we are one of the two largest professional sports in Australia, football codes I'm talking about, so rugby league and the AFL. And you want your sport to be on the world stage if it's a professional sport. You you either want it to attract new markets or, or have uh, players that are in different countries look to maybe try their luck in the NRL, I'm talking about obviously England for a start there, and uh, but you know we, you'd love a new market in America. You can't showcase playing finals football, like vision of finals football, at at venues like Leichhardt Oval. Mm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine sending footage of Leichhardt Oval? as part of the package if you were promoting rugby league in in the United States. And I know, okay, people might, you know, jump at that and say, well, look, that's not the point. The, the game's being played here. It's for the spectators here and Balmain supporters love it and and what have you. And I'm not just picking on Leichhardt Oval. As I said, I think it's ridiculous that we're playing at Shark Park. And to an extent, I feel the same way about Penrith Park because they, I think they have a total of um, 8,000 seats at Penrith Park or Blue Bet Stadium, as, it, as it's called. And you, you, if that's the case, and that's what I'm reading on the place, eight, eight and a half or just under 9,000, that means that just over half the crowd is accommodated in the two hills at either either end for, for a ground that's holding around 20,000. Now, 
I'm sorry, but that's you know that that's just not 2022 facilities. And I get they're going to have a, a rebuild up there. I'm assuming that it's still going ahead. I mean, we, I guess we don't really know 100% well, that, that's the these other days. Thing with the whole loggerheads between the NRL and the state government right now. A lot of that funding is up in the ether right now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, look, I think it is something that that there has to be a rethink. I'm not I'm not opposed to regular rounds of football being played at at suburban grounds. That keeps a bit of uh, tribalism there. But I really do think that we have to look at improving either a vastly improving the spectator facilities or as Spiro suggested just then you can't continue to charge the prices that are being charged to go to grounds where you're going to be standing on a mm-hmm. hill or sitting or sitting on a wet hill um mm. you know like it's I, I, look I went I, I I did plenty of that over my years of following rugby league I still go out to to grounds where I'm standing or sitting on hills when I'm watching lower grade football, but does it? You know, the most of those places I'm not paying to go in where I'm going and, and watching like up on a hill at Kellyville, for yeah. example. You know, if if someone said to me, "You're going to have to pay fifty bucks to go and stand on the hill at Kellyville," I'm sorry, I wouldn't be going and watching the football if I was going and doing that. It's it's just as simple as that. I think it's. You know, there there has to be answers to make the the game, the live experience, more attractive for people. So, yeah, it's an ongoing story with the NRL, isn't it? The whole suburban grounds versus centralised stadium strategy. And yeah, I, I definitely fall on your side of the argument. Sixties, there is a place for the smaller games for the suburban grounds still. If you want to, you know, pay homage to the history of the clubs and their venues, but. When it comes to the big time games, it is an embarrassment for the game to have you know these venues pop up uh, for week one, week two finals. Let's move on, boys. We know that struggling teams need to revamp their rosters, but the New Zealand Warriors taking it to the next level, moving the twenty twenty three. They're farewelling fifteen players from their current roster. Uh, some of them are already off the roster in terms of Matt Lodge and Cody Nicarima at the Roosters in South Sydney, respectively. A couple of retirees or guys going on a sabbatical in Ash Taylor and Chanel Harris Tavita. Then they've got guys joining other clubs, uh, Aiken, Arthurs, Harris, uh, sorry, uh, Katoa, Walsh, and then a whole stack of free agents in uh, Arcee, Finau, Frey, Louis, Murchie, Peterson, Rabadi, and Rituva. Uh, they've got some, you know, sold acquisitions coming their way. Obviously, Parramatta's Murata Niakore. I think Mitch Barnett from the Newcastle Knights. Uh, Tamari Martin, Luke Metcalf, the, and Dylan Walker too. They're probably frontline their free agency class. But, uh, geez, it's hard to see the Warriors going anywhere but either where they are sort of treading water or downwards when you've got that sort of uh, rotation coming through to the club. It's an interesting one, guys. I mean, they haven't had, you know, the greatest year. They've been playing away from home, which has been tough. So they've got to change. They've got to do something. And I think with a new coach comes a bit of a rebuild. Um, Some of the players that they're letting go of are quality. I mean, you're losing guys like, you know, Reese Walsh, um, who I thought had a quiet back end of the year, but, Still, a star of the future. Um, a lot of those guys probably didn't want to move to New Zealand long-term either, which is sort of understandable. And I think they've got some handy additions. Marada is going to be good for them. I don't, really know, I don't really know about Dylan Walker. He's at the back end of his career. But, you know, Metcalf from the Sharks, he's a, he's a pretty good buy. Um, and there are some, some other ones in there as well, which are, are solid. Uh, Mitch Barnett, I know he's had his fair share of issues with the judiciary, but I think he brings a bit of mongrel to the team 
I think they had to do something. They've got to rebuild. They've got to go from the ground up. And with a new coach comes a, a new squad. So it's understandable, but it is very unusual. 15 players going. Parramatta have done this in the past as well. In in seasons gone by, I'm sure you can recall uh, at the last home game of the year where they put all the players up on the screen and you got you know a dozen or, or so. So it's, it's happened with Parramatta, happened with other teams and worked well. And I think the Warriors just had to, to make the decision and, and bite the bullet a bit. Maybe they've bitten the bullet in the way that Manly might need to. Mm. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. Like what happened with the, the Dragons, it'll be an interesting off-season at Manly. I think a lot of the guys involved in the Jersey saga, the Jersey drama, the Pride jersey, some of them are going to walk and go to other clubs. And Marty Tapao wasn't a part of that. He will go as well. So there will be a lot of movement, I reckon. And it'll be interesting. Her. Wouldn't it be interesting to get that list of the players that didn't turn up to their the the truants from Mad Monday? Yes, that that would be very interesting. Very, very. I'm I'm hoping that the media get a hold of it at some point because I would love to know. Yeah, that this is from this is almost like that's the, this is the soap opera. This side is the right? soap. <laughs> this is the the Desperate Housewives sort of um angle for us. <laughs> yeah, we, we need our soap <laughs> opera fix. Uh, but, you could probably you could probably uh, you know guess have a bit of a, a, a stab in the dark and work out. Maybe which players didn't. I don't think any of the pride jersey guys would have gone. Marty Tapao, um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't those guys be the ones that wouldn't have gone to the Mad Monday? That's probably our assumption. That's, that's, that, that's that is where it worked from. Yeah, yeah. That, that this is where it'd be interesting just to see if it was um, if it was exactly that or whether it was just a mix and and you know whether there's players who. Maybe the the last thing on their mind once their commitments are over is having anything to do with football. It might just be that they were tired of of uh, the season, just wanted it behind them, and were just like, you know what, I'm done for the year. That that'll do me. So um, yeah, and yeah, high roster turnover means opportunities for other clubs. The Eels do love a good cheapie or a diamond in the rough. Be very interested to see if we do pick our way through other teams' trash to find a bit of treasure for us. But that's going to be something to monitor in the coming weeks and months as we move into the 2023 off season. Let's keep going for our show this week, boys. We got oh, a can of worms. Um, we're going to call this one the Tail and May precedent because I I don't even know where to begin with this one. Tail and May recently found guilty uh, by a judge for uh, some degree of assault from a, a fan from the 2021 NRL Grand Final post game celebrations. Uh, he wasn't uh, convicted, but the judge delivered a very stern verdict, uh, letting him know, know in certain circumstances that he felt he was a uh, you know pretty, well, I suppose to use a rugby league uh, ism, a weak gutted dog. Uh, uh, but yeah, didn't he come, called it cowardly? Yes, cowardly and reprehensible. Yes, so yes, the 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 judicial equivalent of a weak gutted dog, and uh, yeah, he he didn't face any convictions, but the NRL finally, although they've known about this incident since the start of this year, have finally delivered a verdict from their integrity unit, and it is an absolute shocker. He is going to serve a two-game suspension in 2023, where, and I quote, this is from their actual official statement, in proposing the timing of the match suspension, the NRL considered a number of factors, including when the incident took place, the date at which the proceedings were finalised, and the impact of a match suspension at this time of year. The NRL is literally playing favourites with how they're handing out their punishments now. And and just before... Um, Spiro comes in with this because I, I want I want to take Spiro down this path if I can because mm. um, Spiro you said before about how at this time of year we should be talking about finals 
and that it's unfortunate that we've had so much that was being said about issues at Manly in a week where we should be concentrating on finals. In this instance, the NRL themselves have set up, by their decision, a complete distraction away from the finals and, in fact, a negative about one of the finals by virtue of, of their decision about uh, about deferring the suspension so this bloke can play in finals football. It's, it's, it's throwing the, a, a negative at finals football. It is. And I actually wrote an, an editorial for the Ben Fordham Breakfast Show uh, on this issue because Ben doesn't usually like to take on issues, you know, with rugby league or sport, but he saw a huge injustice when he heard about this. And when I started writing the editorial, the way that I set it up was the finals are upon us, but this incident's overshadowing the build-up, which it is, you know? And it's a farce. I agree with you guys. It's absolutely ridiculous. I think it's one of the worst decisions the NRL have made in recent history. And it doesn't stack up. It's unprecedented. It's never been done before. I don't know why it'd be okay to be done now. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I can understand that the NRL was sort of waiting to sanction him um, because they wanted the court case to go beforehand. That's fine. That's understandable. But if you're going to give him too much ban... He's got to serve it now because no other player has ever had this sort of situation where they've been given a ban and pushed to next year. The, the thing which proves our point that this match ban should be served now is that the fine and the education part of his sanctions from the NRL have to be executed and paid now. He has to pay $3,750 fine on the spot right now. No questions asked. So if he needs to pay the fine now, why doesn't he need to serve the ban now? It's just... And, Plain. and what does this mean? He's in the running for Rookie of the Year alongside, alongside guys like Ezra Mam, And um, I don't think Jeremiah Nanai counts. He might have played too many games last year, if I'm not mistaken. Every week that you have suspension takes three points off your Dalian campaign. But he's not serving the suspension this year. So is he still eligible for Rookie of the Year now? Like, oh, It's a good point. I don't think he'll win it. I think the NRL won't give it to him because they don't want the – controversial headlines that may come with that. But this decision, it, I, I'm just, honestly, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. And as a Parramatta fan, it's frustrating because he's going to play this week when he shouldn't play, shouldn't be allowed to play. He should not be on that field. If you've seen the video, it's horrific footage. What he did was a very disgusting, dirty act, and he should be serving his punishment. Now, we got a bit of feedback to this issue on Facebook, on the Ben Fordham Breakfast Show Facebook page, and I saw a comment that I put aside to discuss with you guys today because I really like what this fan has written. His name's Mark, and he says, I'm a Panthers fan. However, what a dumb decision by the NRL. If it was the regular season, he would have served his time immediately. So why set a precedent that shows no accountability for his actions and will only create justified controversy? Mm -hmm. So I think Mark, Mark puts it into perspective really nicely. He's a Panthers fan. And he, he thinks this is a dumb decision by the NRL. And, and if like, it was a like normal said, game, he wouldn't have been playing this week. What a can of worms now, because moving forwards, you know, the next high-profile player, I mean, Talmay's not even a high-profile player. He's just a good young player. But the next, you know, important starter that cops a suspension for ahead of a big game or a finals game, they're just going to say, well, yeah, okay, we'll serve the suspension, but we're going to serve it next year. Like, where, yeah. where, where do you now draw the line? How do you close the lid on Pandora's box here? Well, look. I think for a start, and I and I didn't. I wrote on this for bumpers up, and 
it, I, I, I should have included this in my comment. I think two matches was light for a start. When you consider the suspensions that players get for something going wrong on the field with no intention, right, just a tackle that's gone wrong, and they can get suspensions for five, six weeks for for something completely unintentional. The bloke, as you said, has grabbed someone from behind. So he's the, the victim has no awareness of what's going on. He's been grabbed from behind. He's been flung forcefully to the ground. His head could have smashed the table. It could have smashed into the ground. He was fortunate with how he landed that he that more serious damage wasn't done. So the intent was there to do something at, which, as the judge said, was cowardly and reprehensible mm-hmm. because it's it's like, look, it's not too far off from from one of those king hits that people do from behind because the person that's being struck has no idea that it's coming. They've got no way to prepare themselves and the intent was to throw him onto the ground. You can see that. He's been grabbed in such a way and flung in such a way by someone who is a professional athlete. And that's the other thing as well. These are people that do weights in gyms. These are mm. people who's, who are different to members of uh, general members of the public because they are in peak physical condition. Exactly and, right. And, and they, they, to do something against a person like that, I mean, we have community standards. Uh, uh, look, I think the judge went light on him for a start in terms of the fines, I'm not talking about the bloke going to prison, but in terms of the fines, that was pretty light on in the court decision. But for the NRL to fine two weeks, how long was Mitchell Pierce put out of the game for an act of stupidity with a dog? Mm -hmm. Like seriously, like eight weeks. weeks, and, And there was something that was interesting that was brought up on 360 last night, which was what would happen if, if something like this again, uh, occurs where a player has his suspension deferred, but he's going to another club at the start of next year. So it, it basically would mean that the club that he's with at the moment, there's no penalty for them mm. having a player yeah. who's committed an indiscretion. And, and the other side it's of, put off till the next year. The other side of this, and it's become increasingly evident in the NRL of the treatment of certain teams and certain individuals when they come to being Teflon on the field like a Sofa Solomona, would this be, you know, attributed the same way to another club if it was Parramatta? Would their player get the same leniency to take part in the Paramount in the final series? Would if it was the West Tigers, you know, mm. all jokes aside about them not making the finals and whatnot, if they were in the hunt for the finals, would they be able to serve? Would Adam Dwyer be able to serve his suspension in twenty twenty three? Well, I think you've even got a case where um, a club that we perceive that gets favoured, like the Roosters, their players have copped massive suspensions. And, uh, you know, it, it makes you wonder about, um, as you say, whether it's certain clubs or whether it's certain players, whatever the case may be. The thing is that when you get a decision like this, even if there's not a case of someone being favoured or not, you get a stench mm-hmm. and you get the average rugby league fan going, how does this work out? Why is this happening for this player or this club? It just carries that stench. The NRL don't need a stench going into finals football, but I tell you what, they've got they've got an absolute stinker with this. Yeah. They, they've and got it so wrong. An interesting point as well, guys. 
that came to mind when we were speaking about finals and suspensions was Michael Jennings back in 2020. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys remember, but it was the day of that semifinal against Souths. Yes. And the the, the timing, you know, with the drug test, right? The difference there, and this is an important distinguishment, is that the NRL has executive authority to handle its in-house punishments how it sees fit, but they also adhere to the wider code when it comes to performance-enhancing drugs. That was a Sports Integrity Australia or, or a SADA test, which meant it was completely outside the hands of the NRL to handle right. handle the punishment there. So, But you, if it was an internal drug test for the NRL, then it's completely different. But yeah, so unfortunately for the Eels there, <laughs> that was well beyond anyone's hands there. But yes, it... it but when, when, you, when you look at, okay, let's look at it from a different point of view, the timing of it, right? The timing was absolutely horrible. I mean, the day of yeah. uh, a game for that to happen, different. If that happened on the Tuesday or the Wednesday would have given us a bit more time to prepare to bring in, you know, Hayes Dunster, who I think made his NRL debut that night. Um, you know, you'd have to, you'd have a bit more time, obviously, but the timing was terrible. Mm-hmm. You can't control, you can't control timing. It's That's it. luck, luck of the draw. Same thing with this. You can't control and, and, timing. But the, so yeah, the, the, the hilarious part is that the NRL had a chance to act on this for the better part of a year. And they chose to let it sit there and fester because mm. the integrity unit was it, made aware of it you know, shortly after the occurrence of it, but they chose to let it sit there and, and try and sweep it under the rug until it got in front of a judge who said, no, it was cowardly and reprehensible. Yeah, and, and this is the thing, right, is that, uh, and I get where Spiro's coming from with this thing in, in, in bringing up the Jennings incident, where, which is that they talked about the timing being, uh, you know, that they took that into consideration for when all of this happened. The thing is, you have a controlling body like what happened with with Jennings and they dictate timing doesn't mean anything right and and that should actually be the case of what the NRL adopts so the NRL because it, it, you had that wider um, conditions where the the imposition of a ban happens immediately it should basically be the same sort of scenario if you have Something like this. This isn't. This isn't even a case of we're waiting for the judicial process to take place, like like what happened with um, with Debellin, for example. And I had no problems with the NRL standing down um, Debellin, um, although I think it's also rough in in some of these instances where if they're found not guilty, that there isn't any recourse uh, in there. But that's a whole. That's a whole can of worms there, and we've got a, you know, we've got a lot of issues around that, and I probably don't want to open up that can of worms because, as I said, I agree with there's a serious uh, charge that players probably do have to face being stood down, but, but, in that case, you with Taylor May, he's been found guilty. That's the thing; he's been found guilty. He hasn't had to stand down because it was considered being to be a lesser sort of charge. But now that he's been found guilty, well, you know what? Now is when you serve the punishment. Mm-hmm. It's there's yeah, and it is such a can of worms. It is a disgraceful decision. It has that stench. It is. It's put the focus on the wrong aspect of the NRL final series. We shouldn't be. We should be talking about this sort of garbage in the lead up to that Battle of the West on Friday night. But you know what? You can't help but talk about it because it's it's a 
an awful, awful call that the NRL has made. Um, is there any chance they can rescind it? Potentially. Does, yeah, uh, like, because it should be. It should be. I, I was thinking that last night when I was writing up that editorial for Ben, I was thinking in the back of my mind, the NRL actually have to take a long, hard think about this decision and overrule it because it's so off the mark, it's not funny. You know, it's so It's embarrassing so to touch. Yeah, it, it is. is just- it's, it's, it is. It's an, it's an affront to community standards. Mm. It's, mm. It goes beyond the NRL. The, like, the general community is outraged by this decision. Yeah. And like you, and, and like even, you point out, even Spiro, Ben, you know, like I said, Penrith fans, Pen, Penrith fans are coming out and saying how ridiculous it is. So it's a it's not a case of blue and gold bias here. This is just a monstrous can of worms have opened for the entire code moving forwards, and it is very very concerning. Yeah, and um, and as I mentioned, Ben doesn't usually go in a bat when it comes to you know controversial issues within rugby league. It's we run a predominantly news show in the mornings, but this actually fired him up and got he caught his attention. So it says a lot about. That's- you know, this decision and how it's impacted people. E-O-E, no one knows what it means, but it's provocative. It gets people going. Uh, moving on, boys, you spoke about stench 60s and uh, things that don't quite add up. Well, what's going on with the NRLW bunker? Parramatta Eels getting absolutely hosed on the weekend out at, um, I was about to say Marathon, but it's uh, McDonald Jones Stadium. Uh, a string of bizarre overturns or no to, like no calls. Uh, Eels unsuccessfully challenging a ruck penalty Newcastle successfully challenging a ruck drop, both of which were, I think, the incorrect cause. But the big one here, I mean, on top of that, there was also a phantom hip drop uh, sighting for Nevada George that handed Newcastle a penalty on a perfectly conventional tackle. But the big one here was what gave – it wasn't a game-winning try, but it put Newcastle into ascendancy, the Taylor uh, Predabon try. Uh, it is Predabon, you're not Predabon. Predabon try where she uh, it went up as a no try. The bunker – went at great lengths, great lengths to, to find uh, a single frame where she might have had the ball on the ground. To my eyes, there was no such frame before she lost it. And uh, even when being awarded the try, you could see Predamon was quite surprised that it had come back as a try. Uh, the We've spoken about the standard of officiating outside of the NRL 60s and how it's a huge concern for the code, a lack of depth, a lack of quality on a, you know incumbent, or not incumbent, incoming uh, match officials and, and bunker officials. But, geez, no game has highlighted that more than the Newcastle game for the Parramatta Eels on the weekend. It's, yeah, it's um, it's really disappointing to see for the goals because the Knights, they were undefeated heading into this game. Parramatta put up such a good fight, hunting for our first win of the NRLW season. And then all these controversial decisions go wrong and go against us to mean we lose narrowly to you know, a very high-profile Knights team. And that try, my goodness, I think that's one of the worst bunker decisions I've ever seen, the Taylor Predabon try, because when you look at it, the replay, the ball did not even touch a blade of grass. Mm-hmm. She had her elbow on the try line. She had her hand and the ball hovering, hovering over the um, the try line, but nothing, no grounding. There was no grounding at all. She then brings the ball back over the the um, the try line and drop, knocks it back. So it's a it was a really odd decision, and I, I got no idea how the bunker deemed that to be a try. Like you said, they they searched pretty hard to find a single frame that you know looked I, borderline. Spiro, you know? I have always subscribed to the theory 
to not mistake for malice that can which be adequately explained by incompetence. If someone's doing a bad job, odds are they're doing it because they're just not having a good day, they're, they're bad at their job, whatever. Like, you know, they're just, it's a bad decision, not one coming from malice. But in light of the Talamay precedent and in light of how bizarre some of these overturns were in this game, you could be forgiven as a fan for thinking there there is some intrinsic bias that has bled into this game, into our great code, because it, it you struggle to explain incompetence to this sort of magnitude because how, how do people hold a job if that's the case? And well, it's very concerning. Well, I, I looked at it this way. As soon as there you we saw the first vision of the ball being lost, right? So the referee sent it up as no try, lost ball. And as soon as the first vision showed clearly, clearly that the ball had been lost, as soon as that bunker official went and started looking at other angles. I knew which way the decision was going to go. And I think most people, given the run of decisions that had happened in the match up to that point, as soon as the average supporters watching that and seeing him look for other angles, you knew what was going to happen. And that is a like it's disgraceful to be thinking that way. But... That was what I said straight away as the as the replays unfolded, and then when you were getting the still frames, and I thought, this is going to be called a try. I can't believe it, but this is going to be called a try. Even before it went up, you knew that was what the intent was, to find an angle that gave some level of justification, and mind you, it didn't. Because even that still frame showed the hand was off the ball. The ball had come out of the hand. So, yeah, it, it was a disgrace. It was a disgrace. I'm. It's interesting that um, because I'm sure the same bunker official was on bunker duties the previous round. Matt Noyan. Yep. Um, and this week, he's not on any of the NRLW uh, bunker uh, roles for over the over the weekend, so um, I haven't seen anything in media releases. I haven't seen too. I, I honestly, I didn't see too much that was made of it um, in the official media coverage of the game, which you can imagine what it would have been like if that was the NRL. Like that would have been all over the media, wouldn't it? That sort of bunker, oh, without a doubt. Uh, well, without looking a doubt. what happened between the Cowboys and the Tigers, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it was, and, and given the sequence, of course. Look, we've Forty's uh, been banging on about this. Uh, something I've said as well that if we want to promote the NRLW to the platform that it deserves to be on, the officiating has to match it. Now we've we've had some concerns about the on-field officiating, but to me, the sort of calls that they're missing in the on-field, I think, would be improved if the sideline officials provided a bit better assistance. Because I think the sideline officials are yeah, the I, ones. I can't believe how aggressively we've we've gone cost-cutting on the on-field officials. If if I was in charge, I'd have four touchies. Two on either side, so you can correctly police offside and forward mark, uh, forward passes. You'd have two main field officials, one being the main whistle, one being the ruck whistle, and you could go even so far as to have in goal officials too to help with the initial uh, calls when it comes to that. Let alone you know the bunker. So 
instead we've gone the opposite way. We're just cutting down and cost and cost um, saving. Yeah, well, you know that also came from a a push to go back to tradition. Yeah, didn't it really? Um, it's I, I never had an issue with the two two main officials approach. I always thought that you know it helped having another set of eyes on the ruck because we, we spoke about the 60s. Rugby league, even if it's a simple game, is incredibly fast-paced and so much can happen in the blink of an eye around the ruck. We've got, you know, we we will, okay, we will from time to time get fired up about referees and the calls that are made. But, you know, the, the heat of the moment, the, the pace of the game, there will be mistakes made. And I think ultimately we accept that mistakes will, will be made but so the, long as they're... They're the sort of calls where you can understand where it's missed. I mean, like, we don't understand. We don't understand how the 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 interference on Mitch Moses in that game in the final last year against the Panthers, how something like that was missed by every single official when it was seen by every single spectator and and uh, person watching on television. That that's that's an exception to the rule. But you know, when there's a little fumble in the ruck, when the player's getting up, when there's you know. Um, a forward pass that isn't quite um, caught by people, you know, we, you accept that because the referee's not going to be always in the ideal position to see things. And especially if they're not getting the support from the sideline officials, then, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get mistakes. That's part of the game, the odd mistake, but that bunker, mate, when you've got, when you've got technology showing you clearly, the latitude given to on-field refs is completely different because, you know, much like a, a coach at the West Tigers, you're almost put in a position to, a position to fail. Uh, the the bunk is different, right? Like you said, 60s, they've got replay on replay, camera angle on camera angle, and most importantly, the time. They don't have to make a call in the heat of the moment. They can sit there and, and you know, make an informed decision, and yet they still get it wrong. Bizarre. Yeah, there, there's, there is nothing wrong with the concept of a bunker. There is nothing wrong no. because the, the, the fact is that, you know, probably ninety-five percent of the time that they are still getting it right, but the ones that they get wrong are absolute powerless. Yep, yep. They're not. They're not ones where it's a, 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 a closely contentious call. We're talking about you know those ones on the weekend. As Spiro said, that it was possibly the worst he's seen. I'm struggling to think of of something that was worse than that because even that call. With the um, the cowboys and the and the tigers, it was it was as much about the sequence of what happened that was outrageous with the the bunker the the call itself whether it was interference you could maybe be like well you know did he change his line you know the people could could talk about that but it was just the way that it all unfolded that was ridiculous this this was in a world of its own. Yeah. Like just a clearly lost ball where the commentators are going, well, she's lost the ball there. And then it's like, and everyone's there who's watching it's going, well, she's lost the ball there. Yeah. You can imagine what it would have felt like for the players out there, mm-hmm. given the run of, given the run of calls that the Parramatta players had had to put up with. And as you said, the laugh that was, ha- the laughs that were happening in the Newcastle team in their celebrations. You know, that almost incredulous. Yeah. Was like, was like laughing almost incredulously when it happened, and then all the players are coming over and jumping all over her because they were all getting ready for the for you know like a twenty five meter tap probably. So yep. 
I mean, what can you do? Uh, Anyway. It's an issue, almost a grassroots issue, really, when we talk about the depth of the officiating and and the processes inside the bunker. Well, that's not grassroots. That's uh, systemic now, and that's something very, very concerning. And obviously the concern now is, is it going to impact the NRL finals? Is there a bad obstruction call looming for some team that's going to put them out of the hunt? So we have to wait and see on that one. But let's end the show on a big positive, boys. Let's talk Parramatta. Top four finish, Parramatta's first top four finish since 2017, I believe, where ironically they end up taking on the Melbourne Storm in week one of the finals. This year, it was at the expense of the Melbourne Storm to make the top four. Uh, and there's some really funny, quirky things that come out of the game against Penrith come into the game against Penrith we're going to talk about. But uh, wh- how does that 60s, I think you said that, that a top four finish bumps the Eels to a B or a B plus. Was that what you said last time we had a chat about this? You happy with that grade now that we've knocked off the Melbourne Storm at the last week of the season? Yeah, look, I am I am happy with where um, with giving that B for the regular season, mm-hmm. right? But where if we the way I viewed it now, and I, I I wrote about this in the in the bumpers up, is that to maintain that B rating that I give it is that it has to be us reaching uh, week three of the finals getting to the preliminary finals. I think if we go out in straight weeks, then to me it's uh, it becomes, say, a C-plus season where um, the achievements are all in the regular season and not in the final series. Um, I mean, obviously I'm still, you know, like we, we had last year where it was completely out of our control, I think, were the destiny in that in that uh, second week, and it was it would have been harsh to judge it uh, the season based on losing that game because we all saw what transpired last year against the Panthers. I just want a final series where the teams decide it, and where it's not uh, it's not decided by uh, mm-hmm. by controversy in any way. It's it's just the um, yeah it, it's. It's just something that I, I would hate to see. Um, uh, just a little correction, uh, forty. We we actually finished third, I believe, in twenty twenty. Correct. Correct. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, we are. You're right. I, I don't know why that slipped my mind, but we did finish third. Yeah. So another, yeah, another top and, four and that finish. One, that one. That one was when we we played Melbourne. Yeah, we played the cracker up in Brisbane, right? Yeah, and we yeah. had all those injuries that yeah. happened. We had Andrew Davey in the centres at one point, I believe, uh, yeah. due to multiple. Uh, I think Fergo and Sevo both had the bow of that game at times. So yeah, so it's our first top four finish since twenty twenty. So the drought's nowhere near as long as I initially implied. But uh, yeah, another top four finish for Brad Arthur and the boys. So a fantastic mm. end to the season, and it's interesting because you look at that ladder now, and the, I'm not dismissing the narratives about Parramatta being inconsistent because they are fair. But Parramatta finished with 16 wins, 8 losses, you know, good for a 2-to-1 win-to-loss ratio, 34 points. Hot on the heels of the Cowboys on 36 points, who really should have been on 34 when you factor in that, you know, drama-laden win in inverted commas over the Tigers. And, you know, just two games short of the, the Cronulla Sharks. So a couple more wins, and suddenly they're on the heels of the Penrith Panthers. And- well, you, let's, let's go back to that late win that the Sharks got over us. That, yeah. that actually that, that flips the tables to 36 points apiece, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it does come down, you know, there are a couple of sliding door moments throughout the season, um, as they are every season, and ev- probably every team can look at a moment, a game that's 
lost and and the cost of of that particular match. Um, but if we were looking at the start of the season, you probably had the punters that were looking at uh, tipping Parramatta probably at at best in terms of the regular season finishing around fourth. I think most most of the so-called experts would have had Parramatta um, sitting in the bottom half of the eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if Parramatta was sitting down and they were setting out their goals for the season, the first goal would have been to finish in the top four. Absolutely. And they can tick that off now in spite of, you know, what has been seen as an inconsistent season. I would probably say inconsistent form rather than inconsistent season. Yeah, if that makes exactly, because it's easy to fixate on the low lows when you have the bad losses or the games that you should have won. But on the flip side, Parramatta have arguably had the highest highs out of any team when it comes to best form and biggest wins. Yeah, yeah. So um, how, how, do, how do you see the season as a whole now, Spiro, the regular season? Yeah, look, I agree with your sentiments uh, on the whole, to be honest with you, 60s. We have to make a prelim, in my eyes. We can't bow out in straight sets because mentally and, you know, what that does for the club going forward is, is going to be pretty pretty disappointing. So we must progress to week three of the finals for, for it to be a, you know, a BB plus finish. Or, uh, you know, if we make a prelim, I'd probably say it's an A minus season mm-hmm. for me. Um, when you look at it, I agree. We probably should have finished second. I think we're the second best team in the top four. When you look at quality team, I think we're second best behind Penrith. I think Cronulla and the Cowboys have both overachieved. They've both had very easy draws. When you look back at it, the Cowboys haven't really been challenged in a while. Um, they played a reserve grade Panthers team last week. They, I know they beat us earlier in the year, which was a you know fully fair win. They beat Melbourne, but during that game, that Harry Grant playing in the halves. So I actually think that the Cowboys may bow, bow out in straight sets. I think Cronulla will fall short. They'll be in the prelim, but they'll they'll lose. Um, so, yeah, I think it's been a great year. And, it's, and as you guys mentioned, it's the first time, and Gutho said this on Monday, it's the first time in a number of years that we've had a, a fully fit squad heading into the mm-hmm. final. Last year, no Reid Marnie, no Mike Acevo. The year before, no Fergo, no Sevo. You had uh, no Jennings. So in my eyes, this is the best we've been, the most prime we've been. We're coming into the finals on good form as well, and we've got to do something special. And I think that making a prelim is a really good start. Um, And from there, I think anything can happen. You've got a prelim at a core stadium. There'll be 60,000 Parramatta fans there, and uh, and they'll tear the house down and hopefully push them into a grand final, and then anything can happen. So I think... Yeah, it's been it's been a great year. To finish top four was very very important. That win last week was crucial because otherwise we would have finished sixth and played the Rabbitohs this week, uh, which would have been very very <laughs> difficult. And I, I actually doubt I doubt whether we would have won. Look, so you got you got to. I was gonna say you yeah, got to you got to beat them at some time, obviously, to get that monkey off your back. But geez, you don't want to do it week one of the finals. No, Not at all. No. And, we, and you know what? We very well could have lost uh, this week and. And gone, you know, and and been out week one of the finals, which would have been a, a huge disappointment. But we've got a chance on Friday night to do something real special at Penrith. We've proven that we can beat them. There are a few little, little omens as well that we'll dive yeah. into in yeah. terms of who's commentating and who's calling and and their record with Parramatta. Uh, also, refereeing wise, who we've got officiating the game and their record with Parramatta this year. So I, I think you know, you give us a good chance this week, but. 
just hypothetically say that, you know, I, I like to think positive, but hypothetically we lose and have to play either Melbourne or Canberra next week, potentially at Combank or at a core, you like our chances. You yeah. like our chances. You know, playing in Sydney against a team that isn't from Sydney, we're going to have the home crowd advantage. The fans will turn out in numbers. And I think we've been too good in the last month to choke and to go out in straight sets. So I'm confident in this team. I'm proud of what they've done. I think it's been a great year. Inconsistency has been an issue. And I think Gutho even said that, even off, off mic on Monday. You know, he said it, it's been frustrating from a consistency point of view. I spoke to Tamara, the media manager at Parramatta, echoed the same comments that consistency has been an issue. But we're coming good at the right time of the year. So I'm confident in this side and, and hoping they can get the win on Friday night. So, to piggyback you know, on it's, that's, that's really, uh, when we talk about the consistency, it, it's probably been the thing that's caused uh, that's caused the average Parramatta supporter to undervalue the achievements of this year. And look, we've probably at, at, at times we've been as guilty of that because we're doing instant reactions to in the heat of the match moment. results mm-hmm. and performances. And you know, there've been those disappointing moments. And the thing is that as soon as you get those disappointing moments, it's like sack BA. Um, you know, get rid of this player or that player or or what have you, when the the calm and measured approach of not overreacting to things has meant that every time there's been a loss, never back the, the Eels have righted the ship and, mm-hmm. and BA's back the players to turn it around. There hasn't been... You, you can imagine what the team would look like if team selections were thrown over to fans, like a panel of fans. <laughs> it'd be you can imagine what some of the what, what some of the people um, selected in the team would be like, and um, it's because everyone's got their favourites for a start, uh, or, or people have got players that they just don't rate and don't like for for whatever reason. There, there's plenty of blokes out there in the NRL that wouldn't have a career if it was based on who the fans selected in teams. Uh, we have to look at it and go, you know what, this team's been steered into fourth place despite. The inconsistent performances, despite and, a horror injury back uh, back injury toll to the back line across the first half of the season too. Oh yeah, that that first half of the season, the fact that we didn't end up with consecutive losses is incredible at any stage yeah. during that period. There, yeah, that is that is absolutely incredible. And and when you again look at the fact that we've ended up with uh, finishing ahead of the likes of the Storm, the Roosters, the Rabbitohs on, in terms of just wins for the season. Mm-hmm. You can see that you've had teams like that. They've had losses in runs, like mm. real yeah. runs of losses. Melbourne, Melbourne dropped, I think, four in a row at one point. So Yes, they yeah. did. And when you look at it, guys, as well, right, you look at, let's say, our last nine matches, we've won seven of our last nine. When you look at our last six matches, we won five out of our five out of our last six. That's the best fight, uh, record yeah. we've had in the back end of a season in well, many many years. To pick you know, back, I think we've underestimated that. To pick back onto, the, yeah, gone. I was going to say to pick back onto what you boys are sort of being laying as a foundation for this game. There is an incredible, incredible confluence of factors for Parramatta coming into this year's final series. Not only are they the healthiest they've ever been, there is no positional crisis at dummy half or wing or knock on wood and Michael Jennings day of sort of incident, uh, not only are they in the best form under Brad Arthur entering the finals coming into a given series, you know, last year was an improvement in that regard, but this year we're coming in really, really well conditioned, well, you know, well positioned. 
not only are we mentally better approached, you know, speaking to Quentin Gufferson about how they're so much more relaxed this year and, and their approach to build into the finals has been much better. But on the flip side, there's that this is the first year under Brad Arthur's tenure, at least you know, competing for the finals, where as opposed to that relaxed and, and, and composed vibe that is going on the team, there is also an undercurrent of desperation too because there is a sense of finality coming into this season for a number of players. We've got guys like Murata, Ice with an asterisk right now, Ray Stone, uh, who else am I missing, boys? There, there's a whole stack of... Reed Marnie. Reed Marnie, exactly. A whole Oregon. Stack, Oregon Kafusi. There's a whole stack of either core or starter or important contributor players. Opa-tick. Yeah, Tom Opachik that, that are all leaving. So to go, it's almost like the perfect juxtaposition of that composed mindset. There's also that desperate hunger. The boys know that while Parramatta's window is not shut because these guys leaving, this particular playing group need to come together and make something special happen to immortalize themselves, not just for breaking the drought, but for everything that they've built across almost half a decade now. Yeah, and I, I like where you've used the word hunger because I think it's hunger more than a desperation. Yeah. I think people might use desperation in a negative no, context. No, 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 not, not a negative context. I know that that's not the context that you meant it. So that when you said like that, the, the hunger, I think that encapsulates it, mate, that the that there is a hunger there. And I was at uh, training on Monday and uh, when asked, and I think uh, you might have asked Spiro, but I I certainly had other people that have asked me, did I get to training? You know, how was it? And I just simply answered, they look fit and fresh. And that was, and that's the way I can, I can summarize what training was like. They looked fit and fresh. And that was what you would want right now that and that also gives a, a a hint as to the physical preparation that's gone into the the training at this time of the year you want the team uh, not just looking fit and fresh but feeling fit and yeah. fresh not limping into the sudden death football you know absolutely battered and bruised but at peaking and that's what the Parramatta have done this year and it was a big part of the preseason narrative about taking the lessons they'd learned from the 2021 finals and applying them this year to you know measure, measure yourself more through the regular season to time your run for the postseason and while it led to some inconsistencies that I suppose they wouldn't have liked uh, appearing perhaps on the back of it they've absolutely got the, the timing right and it's huge so it sets up an incredible week one final against Penrith some real funny quirks heading into this one boys uh, not only are there some milestones, there's some uh, good hoodoos, there's some um, good vibes. Uh, Andrew Voss coming into this game, Spiro, you mentioned this to me. He's got mm. the, uh, not not the whistle, he's got the microphone for the, the main commentary. Parramatta, I think, 10-0 and 0 under his uh, coverage this year. So certainly a great omen there. Correct, correct. They're calling him the Eels Whisperer <laughs> uh, because every game that he's called this year, every Parramatta game he's called this year, they've won. And there are some big games there, you know, that he's called, uh, you know, our, our win in Melbourne against the Storm uh, in round three, I believe. So the, the story here is that he's, he's every game he's called, Para have won. A couple of fans online sort of tried to convince him uh, to call again to see if maybe it's an omen. And we received confirmation this morning from Andrew Voss himself that he will be the lead commentator for Fox League on Friday night. Sports. So will the run continue? Sports are a funny <laughs> thing. Superstitions, quirks, all the weird things. I love that things. stuff. Yep, absolutely. Like I said to Gutho about the Top Gun thing, right? Yep. 
and he liked it as well. His mum is into it actually, but I love that stuff. I look for anything that I can hold on to uh, that gives us that hope, and, and the Vossi study is one of them. Um, so it, it's interesting. It, like you said, a few milestones. Junior's uh, Junior Bowler's 200th NRL game. Correct. Isaiah Papali's 50th Eels game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also you look at the officials officiating for the game. His record, Jared Sutton, refereeing Parramatta, surprisingly only officiated three Eels games this year, but some very important clashes. Uh, yeah, 40. The, the first clash against Penrith in round nine, I believe it was, 22-20 victory for the Parramatta Eels, followed up by our big win over Manly. And the only loss under his whistle was the one against the Broncos, which certainly wasn't an officiating issue. It was more of a, you know, not chasing the contact issue. So the fact that we not only dodged Ashley Klein, uh, but we also got a guy that's called some pretty good neutral games for us is a huge boon for the Parramatta Eels heading into Friday night. And I have my own uh, superstition, which I'm riding strongly at the moment. I, and I'm so superstitious about it. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. <laughs> but I have I have something in my routine that is, uh, and I I worked out three weeks ago what it was. I had a look at the history of the of Parramatta's games this year, and what I was doing around those games. I fine tuned it three weeks ago to make sure that what I'd identified <laughs> as a superstition could could actually be true. I love sports, and then. And then I adhered to it the last three weeks. So, but I am so superstitious about this superstition that I'm not, not even going to disclose it. Yep. What it was. Wow. I, I love sports. Like, even when you know it, it can't possibly make a difference, it makes a difference. So oh, you, this has made a huge difference. This has made a huge difference. So, <laughs> uh, and, and if it if it rolls into, you know, the next few weeks, um, it will only be after a grand final win. Or after we well, bow out, you know what? Maybe if we if we win the grand final, you still can't tell us because we're going to go back and go back to back and then back to back to back. So, <laughs> well, maybe as well because I I wouldn't maybe I won't reveal it because it'll prove how much of an idiot I am <laughs> so, <laughs> to believe that it would have any influence on it. But uh, yeah, so anyway, I've got my own superstitious routine that I'm going through at the moment, and we'll see how far it carries us. Very nice. Love that. Love it. I love all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's a huge game. I can't wait. I can't wait to see you out there 60s as well. And I expect you to be uh, looking up to the box and, and signaling, you know, at a couple of points during the game. So, yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so good. And, and I think from my conversations with Gartho and just generally, this is the best way you have come into a final series on all fronts. We just got to get in there, do our job, get, the, get it done and progress to a prelim and then anything can happen from there. So yeah, I think you did. You did um, send me the little um, uh, clip that had grabbed uh, me in the background watching training <laughs> the other day. So I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was I was spied being the a spy, spy was spied exactly. Right. Yeah, Count, counter surveillance right there. Sixties <laughs> and I are going to call our shots tomorrow in the preview podcast, Spiro. But before we do wrap yep. up this episode, going to have to get your take on how it's going to play out on Friday, mate. Do the Eels prevail? And if so, how do they win? Parramatta prevail. I think it's going to be a very tough, gritty game of football. I think it'll be 12 points, to, or actually 14 points to 10. Parramatta Ooh. will win and, you know, progress to a prelim. I think it's going to be one of the best games we've seen all year. Very similar to style to how it, things played out when we played Penrith at Penrith mm-hmm. in round nine. I think it'll be a very, very similar game and sort of similar to last week's game against Melbourne as well. Very, very defensive orientated. 
and uh, Parramatta get the job done. I'm going to say Clint Gutherson, man of the match. And first try scorer, I'm going to go with Mike Acevo uh, like to, to score score first. So, yeah, I, I'm confident in the boys. I don't want to you know get too ahead of myself, but I think they'll get the win. All righty. Well, looking forward to touching base with you after a prospective Parramatta Reels win next week, Spiro. But until then, thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen. Hope you enjoyed an absolutely loaded podcast full of some good stuff, some drama, some uh, crazy NRL talk. As always, check out everything else on thecumberfro.com, and we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Go your wheels.